This is Michael Osterlink. Welcome to O Radio. We explore individual and social transformation through collaborative action. I'm a psychotherapist with a transpersonal and somatic specialization. I'm also a transpartisan social entrepreneur and head instructor at SealFit's Unbeatable Mind Academy. Today's show is sponsored by Synergy Float Center, a premier flotation therapy center located in Old Town, Alexandria. When you take time to slow down, amazing things can happen. Take care of yourself by booking a float, sauna, or one of the many other services they offer today. You can learn more about them at SynergyFloatCenter.com. Today's guest on O Radio is Dr. Stuart Chavatsky. He is the author of many books, including Advanced Spiritual Intimacy, Words from the Soul, Your Perfect Lips, History of Yoga in America in the Columbia University Dex Desk Reference on Eastern Religion, and over 40 yoga and clinical articles and chapters and was interviewed by the science editor for the New York Times on Kundalini Tantra. He has over 30,000 hours of counseling experience and directed the first spiritual emergent service, spiritual emergent service in the world since 1983, the Kundalini Clinic that helped modify psychiatry's diagnostic manual to include spiritual issues and depathologize meditative states. Stuart was chant master with San Francisco's band Axis Mundi for 20 years, pioneering a cave simulating electronica for 130 Burning Man community events, leading Kirtan events throughout Europe, India, and the US with numerous world fusion recordings in the top 20 of thousands at SoundClick. He has done intensive Kundalini yoga for 46 years, including six hours a day since 2018. It's uh, good to see you, Stuart. Thank you, Michael. It's good to see you and stay in touch. As you you, you didn't get a chance to mention that we've been in touch for more than 20 years, right? Uh, exactly. So you've been with the mid-90s? Probably, yeah. So it's 25 years or something. Right? Wow. We, we're getting older. <laughs> That's for sure. So since you brought that up, for, for folks, just so you know, my connection to Stuart, uh, when I was in grad school studying transpersonal psychology, um, I'm not really sure how we encountered each other, but I discovered your work and I was really amazed by your spiritual existential approach. And um, I, I kind of hired you out as a mentor to bring some of my case studies with me to work with you to understand your perspective through my clients, which were amazing insights that you had in terms of kind of the human connection and working with clients. And then we've remained friends ever since and stayed in contact for 20 plus years, which is always which warms my heart. And it's uh, always nice to talk to you. So today, Stuart, I want to talk to you about something you posted on Facebook, which was the medicalization of life. And I know, you know, you primarily focus in your, in your content on Facebook around the psychiatry and psychology and, and how the model we use in the West is, is kind of depersonalizes people, um, makes them cogs and machines, um, looks at them as variables that you kind of maneuver around on a chessboard as opposed to, you know, fully expressed human beings. And I might be mischaracterizing. That's just kind of the way I read into it. So obviously I want to hear your take on your own writing. And if you could talk about us in the West, especially in America, how we have medicalized life and that you offer a different model, which I say would say is more human and spiritually oriented than the medical model. Right. Yeah, I like the topic. Um, the first point is we're trying to be as effective as we can in solving problems. Yeah. 
And we, I think it's good to remember that the scientific method or medical model, you know, comes out of a uh, attempt to be as effective as possible for the greatest number of people. And uh, standardized testing or statistical studies of outcomes and matching uh, studies of groups to try to control for variables. You know, the whole effort of the scientific method going back to Francis Bacon, you know, was to come out of uh, superstition. You know, let's just see what we feel would work and, uh, uh, and test it. You know, so really the first thing to try to re re remember is that you could say that the scientific method was testing the efforts of intuitives, let's say, to have this humanistic contact with people and wield uh, whatever remedies they were using, whether it was a method of talking, I mean, there are outcome studies on um, psychotherapy, uh, just to, the last ones that I heard of, a third got better, a third got worse, and a third remained the same. You know, so uh, well, it's hard to know what you know what to make of that. Except um, if you start seeing some clinicians beat the odds and are on getting eighty percent and better, and then it's well, what does better mean? And then you start to get into a range of concerns of of um, the ability to suffer better versus the elimination of suffering. If, if you know, as soon as we start to make that differentiation, um, why would we even think of a criteria that would be a, a ways to suffer better? What would that even mean? Well, let's say we have a concept of character. You know, up to some degree, suffering builds character, you could say, yep. you know, as part of life. <clears throat> um, if we have the virtues of forgiveness and apology and admiring the struggle, we could say that the adversities of life have a chance to make us deeper human beings instead of having a psychiatric uh, diagnosis, for example. We might see ourselves as uh, having been enriched by our struggles of life. Uh, does that, that could mean, you know, we're, we're let's say PTSD. Let's take, because the, the, the term itself is post-traumatic. Something happened. How are we afterwards? The something that happened, uh, uh, you know, the term itself, you know, <clears throat> was developed after, uh, I think, to replace the word shell shock, the concept or the phenomenon of, of, of uh, soldiers, military people being in horrific situations and, and being... Uh, completely thrown by it. So on the one hand, we have the possibility of the hero, someone who is goes through a right, we could call it a rite of passage. And that's also kind of an interesting concept. Rite of passage is not war, it's a actually a designed difficulty to endure a, a, a vigil, a uh, time in the woods, uh, with uh, a flashlight and a penknife for three days and no food. And, you know, cultures around the world have utilized what we might call stress, stressful situations to help the young of their, of their tribe, of their culture, 15, 16, 18, 20 year olds, different times of ages of life to go through something stressful 
they wouldn't say, well, we want to mess up our kids by giving them PTSD at an early age. So we're starting to see the difference of a medical viewpoint on this matter of stress and trauma and difficulty. And, uh, you know, what I'm trying to definitely make room for is not everybody will go through, you could say, the same stress and come out heroic. Or certainly on the other side, all come out with um, inability to function. So we're starting to, you know, get a little more complex about your original question, uh, the medicalization. Yeah, it's a best, by many minds, you know, best effort of a, of, of a civilization to try to sort out what's effective, how to look for signs to see who is, did well, for example, after um, the trauma, which could be, as I say, the PTSD term came as a concept from the military uh, psychiatric world, uh, but it was broadened to apply to all kinds of situations. And that just as a slight footnote, I hope your listeners are taking notes because I'm going, developing a lot of little tangents as I speak. Um, but you know, the term, it's a lot of these terms have, have a second life, these professional terms you know, PTSD and um, phenomenon of trauma, dissociation, for example, you're not sure if you're in, in present time, you're disassociated from your present time. Uh, you know, these are two terms that, uh, for example, uh, have, have leaked out or have spread out, have actually have been you know, promoted uh, into the lay population, you know, if we were to say, you know, say to people, oh, I think you have cancer, Michael. Why don't you uh, let me help you? You know, you'd say, well, wait a second. How do you know I have cancer? And I said, well, I just think you do. Or, or you have a, some characteristics of it. You would much prefer to have uh, some type of lab results or lab testing to check it out. So the, the medical apparatus, which has its home more and more in the world of medicine, you know, it starts to filter over into yeah, psychiatry and then our, our psychology and then pop psychology is another genre that I'm kind of really pointing out that lay people start uh, utilizing this term. Oh, I have PTSD or she has or I think you don't you have it, but you, don't, you haven't recognized it. You know, is that the same as uh, we have to watch just for a moment? You know, what, if someone said, oh, I think you have cancer, well, I, th I think you, you need a, a brain surgery. <laughs> or you should drink more tea for your, your tumor, you know, that I think you have. You know, these are medical concepts, medical phenomena, you could call them. Diagnostic, uh, diagnosable disorders that are organic, we could say, in, in the bodily existence of the person. You know, and we would, we know to make that separation, let doctors diagnose. And they're not going to also just do it off the cuff. They're going to eventually, or maybe immediately, want you to take uh, some lab tests. So start to see the specialization or the strength of the medical model, you know, where, where we would all tend to trust it. I don't mean without exception. Some people will believe they have cancer or, or get diagnosed and try to treat it holistically. There's lots of, you know, variations of of, avoid, of, of not participating in the uh, mainstream medical model, even with medical issues. 
So I'm just trying to lay out the land of this question, which is kind of a broad territory. There's mountains and hills and valleys, all kinds of areas about this medical model. But now I want to focus into um, where it's more subtle, where the, the, the gaze, the way of looking at people through a medical eye versus, yeah, this model of, you could say, a poetic approach. You know, looking at struggle of life and you see some beauty in it. That's what I mean by poetic approach. And, and you start to wonder, or at least I do, and this was my whole career, is, uh, yeah, there are some categories I always keep my mind open where medication is, uh, could be helpful, uh, which is definitely way over there in the psychiatric and, and medical world. But I also would watch if I'm not looking at my clients, and I, as, I, as you've noticed, yeah, I've been doing this for close to 50 years now, and five, I don't know, but more than close to 6,000 different people probably all over the world too, all, lots of different countries, Africa, Asia, uh, Russia. Um, you know, what I would also add in is that we're not looking at a specimen, which is part of where the um, scientific model came from. Is, you know, you, you, when you're looking at a butterfly, you, we don't imagine the butterflies looking back at us. When you look at a rock sample, you don't feel, oh, the rock just changed. It got happy because we were paying attention to it. But yeah, you're smiling right now. I, I think everyone can see that. Yeah, that the human being and the dog and the kitty and the maybe the goldfish, you know, we're going into this realm of subjectivity it's often contrasted with the idea of objectivity, you know, but, but this is where they're not to be so much contrasted, they're, they're tandem, they're, they have their, each have their strengths. But in the subjective in, in counseling, you know, we're really championing the difference, what we, yeah, what we could call the human to human interaction. I think of the, one of the most uh, significant medical cures, I could have to call it, in my profession, you know, all these people was a, a couple that I saw and she had endometriosis. She was going in for surgery, these fibroids and, you know, not a good thing and uh, diagnosed and it was at a high enough level. Nobody doubted that the medical intervention would be some type of surgical intervention. And we talked about, uh, this is a difficult topic, but, you know, this has happened to have been the topic. We talked about an, an abortion that had been um, kind of not talked about, any, it was just kind of moved on. Abortion can be that kind of a procedure where you kind of just not get too much into the loss, let's say. You think it's a good thing. There's politics, even, you could say, around it. You feel good about the abortion rather than have misgivings, have some kind of pro- uh, pro-choice emphasis to it. If you're pro-choice, you're not really tending to linger in what, that I just do something very troubling and not just physiologically, but morally. So now moral questions start coming in. The medical model definitely has concerns about morality. And yeah, you start to see, yeah, uh, uh, the, the medical model is modified, you could say, by what's ethical and what's moral. But back to my couple, after talking about this with her husband, they realized they hadn't ever shared any sense of grief about this abortion. 
They both cried in my office. One, I think it was the wife, said she had been lighting candles uh, in a, without telling her husband to commemorate uh, this loss that had been, I think it was more than five or seven years ago. She had been, uh, you know, to that degree of, 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 of um, dealing with this loss. And then he spoke up his side of how he, and he had never talked about this with his wife. They just kind of felt a sigh of relief and, and had their private thoughts about it, but didn't say, gee, how are you doing week after week? Oh, I feel, I think I feel better now. Yeah, I'm over it, meaning the medical side of it. <clears throat> but the psychological side, as I'm saying, went on and on in these different ways. And for each person, they never communicated. After that conversation in my office, my, uh, the woman went to her physician for her preoperative checkup. Now, this is the part that, you know, it's like Ripley's Believe It or Not, he couldn't find any fibroids. The, can the surgery was canceled. You know, I, I have a few other, you know, I don't know what to call them, miracle interventions. You know, the medical model is, I wouldn't say don't go to, to that client. Don't go to your, your preoperative uh, checkup, you know, and, because uh, it went away. I, I think I, I know how to make this go away. I would, it was a, it was a surprise, but I have, I reported in that sense, almost like a, a scientific case of one, but now I can, you know, go to broader range of problems where uh, profiling, profiling is an interesting term in, in our modern world. It can relate to violent people or uh, people at, at risk in many ways. At risk, even, is a kind of a demographic term, you know, certain criteria are met. A, a kid, a teenager is called an at-risk kid, meaning they're like, they could break the law. And, and so you want to get them counseling beforehand, you know. So profiling is yeah, establishing a scientific method of criteria that are typically a part of a certain, uh, in this case, person's uh, makeup, you could call, or character, or they're fun in the world, you know, they're missing a lot of kids are missing a lot of school, uh, they're, uh, their clothing isn't kept up, um, they're uh, coming in late, they're not finishing their assignments, you know, different, uh, and then you find out the father's out of work, you know, these are uh, criteria, we add them all up, and, and then the, the counselor or the teacher says, I think you should talk to your guidance counselor, something like that. And of course, that's an HR, you know, there's looking for signs, you know, it could be alcohol consumption, you know, uh, somebody notices somebody's drinking and then they're not coming to work. So these are criteria. It's a sort of a scientific method of, 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 of deduction. If these things are criteria are present, then therefore the, thereby they stack up and now we have a person that should get counsel. So, um, The, the, the challenge, as I'm going to now move into, uh, for the counselor is really that the, the diagnosis is interesting and possibly helpful. It, it's, it's the whole point of screening and getting someone referred, right? But once they're in your office, it's a very different context. Your goal is not to keep diagnosing and diagnosing what the person has and what their new criteria some people would say, yes, you're tracking for progress, the diminishing of symptoms, 
they're called symptoms now, not criteria, uh, when they are in the, taking place in the uh, therapist's office. But what is more subtle level is if this is, um, if I look, I'll cut right to the decisive difference. If I look in the eye of my client and feel admiration, if I start looking up, to, feeling like I'm looking up to them as a person, rather than looking at what's wrong, what are the criteria, are they fitting what I was told? Um, you know, uh, if, I, if I miss out on shifting my, literally my perspective, the way I'm looking, I found that I'm losing something. I don't say things like, I'm so glad you're here. I admire your courage for coming to this session. Uh, you uh, either were referred or you had to lead to be helpful, or you came on your, your own will 100%, and you know, you're just meeting me, and I admire people that have a, a hope to improve their lives. And so now, yeah, these aren't things a doctor will necessarily say to you. Uh, if they're a holistic doctor, yeah, they, they will talk to you um, as a person, not just a, 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 a patient, if I can say it that way. And so, but what, what I'm kind of now saying is it starts to, what, to my uh, long years of experience, make a critical difference. If I repeatedly say every session, I can say, you know what, uh, just because you come now to like 20 sessions, I don't, I don't stop admiring you, you, you coming. You could quit anytime, you know, uh, there's traffic, there's the expense. You know, I start adding in the, the somewhat marginalized criteria or hurdles, uh, the uh, cost, the time frame, the giving up of other things people would rather do. And so now that these are things people didn't think was something they were gonna be admired for. They're not gonna be, appreciated for making it to the session so much. And many times, and from time to time, I would say, you know, I never know, none of us ever, whether something will befall me or you. And that was our last session ever because somebody died. So I refresh the, the, the actuality of a session happening with this extremely hidden possibility that uh, there's traffic everywhere. I used to work in the Bay Area, San Francisco area, there's a tremendous amount of traffic. People can be killed at any time. And the fact that they show up, uh, I did do a talk on this in a psychoanalytic uh, group, because they never would, never thought to say something like this. If the client came late, they would analyze it. What do you think was the reason why you were late? You know, I would say, thank God you're here. You know, I've been waiting. I never know if your lateness is due to you if you died. You know, and I mean, not that blunt, but I try to refresh the fact of merely continuing to be alive as a feat mm -hmm. or as a, uh, a, a given that deserves to be appreciated. And I found that it makes, makes a huge difference. And I do this in many, many different ways. I'm giving you, you know, some, you know, major examples of how to say this. It's not a medical model. Doctor doesn't say, "Wow, well, you know, you're 10 minutes late and, and I'm just really touched that you're still with us on the planet and that you made it. Doctor may say, uh, you know, I have to bill you for the full hour or something like that, you know, and that's a bureaucratic response, not a medical response. But I was 
you know, and I'll tell you the little story, you know, that drove this home to me. Must have been around 1985, I think it was, 84, 85. I was a trainee, like you were when I met you. <clears throat> and I knocked on my supervisor's door. That's like, what, 30 or 40 years ago? I can't, 15, 35 years ago. Knock on his door, you know, noon or one, you know, one in the afternoon for my hour of supervision doesn't answer. There's no answer. I go, wow, that's odd. Knock, 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 knock. Eventually I leave. A day or something too later, I get a phone call from his family that he was dead. He was in the home that day and he had died 2 a.m. the day of my session that I came to. Wow. And uh, I decided never to forget that because I, that was the time before last I'd ever seen this beautiful human being who was my mentor. And afterwards, I got to read his notes about me after he was dead and we were looking through his stuff. And he would take notes about me like I was his son. Aww. Oh, I want to tell Stuart this. Oh, I want to tell him that. Oh, this is about him. You know, so I found out that there was a hidden layer of meaning that only came out when I read his notes after he died. So I took with me and many other experiences. I'm, I mean, hundreds and hundreds of them probably have to tell you that they compile together and, and describe what we might call, yeah, the existential humanistic way of looking at life, which is that actually it was Buddha's way of looking at life too. Buddha's enlightenment in the story as it goes was as a young adult, he saw an old person, a funeral, and a, uh, an ill person, and he'd never seen these things really before, and it shocked him. And every, after that, all he could think about everyone he saw is, well, this young person will grow old, this old person will, could get a disease and die. And his heart became totally compassion-driven. And uh, that's a big word, compassion that not, not the medical, medical gaze is trying to add in compassion, but uh, what I'm saying is making a huge conversation about admiration and not just compassion. I found that compassion tended to be for the suffering part of the individual. And even if you're trying not to feel pity, you're pulling stories. And, it's, and this is the medical model too. Why would you go to a psychologist's office if it wasn't to talk about getting your uh, problems helped, getting healed of your PTSD. You know, you're going there for that. So if the, you know, why is he admiring me all the time? When are we going to talk about my symptoms? And so what I would find out, you know, talking some about the symptoms, but, uh, uh, but admiring, admiring about uh, the challenge of, of uh, broadening one's perspective. And then, then if I see a person smile suddenly, like I did see you and now again, I would say, your PTSD just went away. And then I would say, you know, look around my office. And, and they'd say, oh, yeah, 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 right. I, I didn't see that before. You know, I'd say, yeah, yeah, when, the P, when it goes away, you leave that, 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 that belief about yourself or that way of, about yourself. You know, the moment of smiling, you're sort of a, calling it a f freedom from post-trauma grip, you know. And so I see the moment of it happening. And that's another aspect of the approach that I'm really sharing with you, is I started dealing with very small time intervals. 
in which progress would happen or a smile would happen or a tear would develop of, of, of between a couple, a tear of, of, of compassion or love or hope or good memory or something. It lasts for like a half, couple of seconds. And I would make the whole session be about those couple of seconds. In that sense, it's, I think, you know, in terms of scientific models, like turning the magnifying lens of the microscope up right there when you see progress, or what I would call progress, connection between people, apology, forgiving, you know, and then beauty, having them talk about, not just me, if a couple say, oh, you saw your husband, he just welled up when you remembered uh, his, when he proposed marriage, that was 30 years ago before you had any problems. You, you remember that, look at him. That's going back in time. There was no problem. It was all goody, good stuff. And what we find out about, yeah, this psychological world is that it's, it can be changed by language itself, by choice of what we talk about. And memories could be anywhere. And positive memories, which I was taught never to talk about. You have to get a feel for this. The medical psychiatric model, and certainly even up until this, let me think, let's say this early 70s when I was entering the profession. Yeah, we were all trained. You know, you don't want to waste any time. You're talking, you're not going to add, oh, you know, what was your happiest day? What are you most proud of? You know, none of those, it was always, yeah, what was, what trauma happened? And, and getting into that, and I would start realizing that I had a skewed view of my uh, patients, but all my colleagues had that view. So no one, no one was calling. Wait, wait a second, is this odd? No, we would get in rooms together and and, th and throw around our, our our observations, and nobody would even think twice about, it. you know, is there any other information about this client? This is 60s, 70s, 80s. Uh, I think we I'm not, did we meet at JFK or wherever. It happens in many different schools, where case presentations are all about. Case presentation is a medical model, you know? And so, but we're talking about personality, listing all the symptoms. And so for me to even, any of these things, thank you for making it. I admire you persevering through traffic. They smile, I say something about it. I say, look at me when you smile. They, yeah, it makes me smile immediately too. That's human, that I'm smiling. You know, and then I say, how does it make you feel that when you smiled, you made me smile? I guess it makes me feel good. And I say, this is the path of well-being. And then I'm saying, I'm, I'm getting back to uh, efficiency, which is the purpose of the medical model, is to try to have the most efficient methods with the least side effects and the most uh, achievement of goal. And so that's where I would say, I could make the goal happen immediately with no side effects. You know, the two people smiling at each other and saying, thank you, this is great. Now that art is very much a poetic venture, meaning the kind of words and conversation that I can then say, but and the language I use, you know, I can say, oh, you were glowing. You looked like the, like a, like almost like the sun coming up. And they go, ah, ha, ha, ha. but I've used metaphor. I've used a part of poetic language, you know, which is not a medical term, it's poet, poetry. And then uh, I can keep broadening and broadening, talk about, you know, of the hope that comes at sunrise. And you, what is that? Oh, yeah, that, you know, sun comes up, I feel that way. So we're making use of, you know, this uh, a very poetic time of day or, or use of language, sunrise, beautiful, you know. And that starts making, now we're doing poetry therapy. Is that a scientific project? 
uh, I don't think the poets would want, tend to want their art to be put under uh, you know, an insurance billable and, uh, model, but they'd be happy to be what they are, yeah, using poetry to heal. Uh, and so uh, then, you know, it's getting, let me just take one more step forward. You know, you, people, you're talking to people in this, let's say, poetic way, appreciative way about, they've come in with PTSD symptoms and whatever they say, they can't sleep. I say, well, you know, that's noble. You're struggling with that. And I move to you know, be very, very helpful. And let me make a tiny footnote. Yeah, I'm going to prescribe different techniques, you know, like the equivalent of a medical remedy, you know, um, whether it's uh, slow breathing, reading stories, not looking at the TV or laptop for half an hour, an hour before you go to sleep so the retina is not bombarded with, you know, with recent uh, visual memory, you know, different things that you could call scientific tips to helping one uh, sleep or whatever it might be. Um, but, you know, it's more uh, all the, the admiration I'm talking about, the in the moment uh, triggering, so to speak, of a positive experience. And then what I wanted to get to is to say, I would explain to the client, you know, if we keep doing this, you're gonna, your, your chemistry may change in your body because you can't change for one second, your pupils expanded, your bloodstream carried different hormones of openness, let's say maybe they're oxytocin, uh, if we can use that term now that the uh, science is investigating that uh, as a love hormone, you know, there was a good feeling, adrenaline went away, or anxiety and adrenaline went away, you know, if the person feels relaxed, they're smiling, you know, if we keep a certain conversation going, I'm, I'm talking about anything, talk about the 49ers games, you know, I get very casual because I know what my goal is. My goal isn't to stay true to a method of inspecting dreams or expecting uh, where was the first trauma and what was that like. And then this bizarre theory, which I, I wrote a lot of, about to critique it, was this belief that if you talk about the problem long enough, you relive it, somehow you'll discharge the negativity and you'll be free. I tried it. I was trained in all that, and I was trained in, in very, you know, uh, as a true believer. I did it for 10, 15 years, and then I, one day, and I was all alone in my, among many colleagues, and say, I'm not sure this is helping. I think it's starting to make my people worse. That you know, they say, No, no, go deeper. There's more. There's more. And I would read about multiple personality disorders, people constantly going deeper and deeper. And then they would say, no, we're uncovering these multiple personalities that were in there all along. And I'm going, I think we're causing them. Hmm. We're just making people go back in time and like there's something there that suddenly they'll get better. You know, and I knew Freud had tried it. And I knew some of his stories and they, they shocked me, frankly, you know. I won't get, you know, there's so many tangents, you know of, uh, you know, his early stories, you know, looking for the first trauma and discharge, you know, and that was what our profession got started on. You know, I would say, yeah, there's some degree of getting better by talking and sharing tragedies with another human being, but I don't only give compassion or empathy. I give admiration. I listen in such a way that I say, you know, it blows me away. You know, look at what's happening in your life and you went through all of that. And that was a challenge. And so that's a little word from just reflecting back, mirroring, to admiring. I started 
you know, having a little effect, but over the course of months and years, I believe that it made a huge positive effect because my clients were, I was expecting that they wouldn't just have interminable PTSD. You know, it's a strange diagnosis. Post-trauma doesn't have an end to it. It's not temporary post-trauma, it's post-trauma. You know, and that's truly what's happening to my eyes. People never get out of it because there is no uh, uh, heavily expectation for PTSD to end. It was only in the last year that I looked up uh, Google controversy, PTSD controversy, because I didn't know if there was one yet. There was a big controversy about that diagnosis, just like multiple personality when it was all the rage, if I can say it that way. And, uh, let me think, let's say the late 80s, early 90s, PTSD, you know, it was a big phenomenon from like minuscule to like 20% of all women and some percentage of men, PTSD, multiple personalities that are coming out. And, and now you can notice, I don't remember the year exactly, but the, the DSM doesn't mention multiple personalities. I didn't know that. I think it's called, yeah, dissociative disorder or uh, depersonalization disorder. But uh, they've loosened up because there's too much controversy. A lot of this happens throughout the history of psychiatry. There's a diagnosis medicalized. It's a condition. And then uh, people check it out and they find out that, yeah, more hysteria, the wandering uterus diagnosis. What happened? The wander that, that came and went. Schizophrenogenic mother, you know, the mother who's the cause of an illness called schizophrenia. That came and went. And you see, yeah, the, when you have a long historical view, you see medical terminology applied to psychological states. Sometimes it hits the nail on the head, seems to be accurate. Other and then it plugs a person into medical treatments rather than only talk therapy. Talk therapy is a supplement, but, you know. And then other times these uh, diagnostic terms, they perish. And, and they're kind of a, an embarrassment, you know. How could we think that? So listen to you talk about your approach. I can't work. hear you. <clears throat> listen to how you talk. I can't hear you. Oh, really? Oh. How about now? How about now? I'm not hearing you. Huh. Here, can you hear me? Yes. Oh, that was kind of weird. Don't yeah. know why. Okay. So a few things that perhaps the way I might characterize what I heard you say as you talked about differentiating the medical model versus kind of the existential spiritual model that you just laid out. Um, three things that kind of stick to my mind is it, you recognize that everyone's on the hero's journey. If you want to use the language from mythology and, you know, Joseph Campbell, who popularized that, that uh, theme um, and recognizing that, that, you know, everyone's through that is in that is on that journey. Um, in their life, no matter what they're going on in their life, you know, there, there's, there's obstacles to overcome and hills to climb and, and challenges they face, and you're recognizing in them of that. The other thing I heard you say is you kind of your heartfelt approach, um, coming from a place of admiration, care, and compassion, and love. I'll use the term love, knowing you all these years. And then one thing I heard you say, too, is that you, you're attempting to help them cultivate certain capacities in themselves through time. So they, they might have a sm through a smile. They might have an opening, which changes their neurochemistry, obviously. But you want to cultivate that as more of a habit that they can, they can constantly get into 
and by engaging another person in the admiration, the, the love, the care, compassion, uh, forgiveness, and apology, you know, all these different kinds of things that you utilize. But those are capacities, what I hear you saying, is you're helping them cultivate over time. So it doesn't, it's not just a moment in time, but it's something they can extend in time, uh, which changes their whole physiology and changes their perspective on life and how they engage themselves and other people. So, are, are, you know, is that kind of a fair way of characterizing the hero's journey, heartfelt approach, then cultivating certain capacities over time? Sure, let me, let me add something, you know, it's not for not every single person, but it's probably common hopeful hope of, of most 90%, some huge percentage of people wouldn't mind falling in love. You know, maybe it happens in the grammar school, little kids are smiling at each other and high school, they're, you know, dressing up and going to dances, whatever's happening now. I don't know exactly. We used to go to what they call the sock hop at the YMCA, you know? And so, yeah, you know, this is part of life. Darwin called it, you know, sexual selection, mate selection. You know, it's a big part of life. So what I'm tying into is, yeah, people start to get to a level where they're talking about someone they're attracted to, or they are in a relationship, or they're in a marriage, or in, you know, maybe with children. We live in an era that I've noticed changed from the 50s when family life was sort of thought of as like going to be a good thing. I, I'm, I'm, I'm that old. In the 50s, I watched a lot of black and white TV. Father knows best. You know, the, the top title itself could never happen anymore. You know, that there were archetypes of, of uh, on the TV shows, you know, Dick Van Dyke, uh, Mary Tyler Moore, uh, Donna Reed, many, many different uh, family situation comedies with a slight amount of drama. And you saw these models. And I have to say that my childhood street in Rochester, New York, that's how the majority of the families lived. We thought that if dad goes to work or mom and dad go to work and come back and then there's dinner and that's called a day in the life. And then there's going to school and coming home and uh, you're with your family. It wasn't my family. My family was quite disrupted that my dad did come back from, uh, we, we believe from uh, Germany in World War II and he was not okay. He, he, he had what they call shell shock. He did live 20 years of his life in the, in the VA hospital and died, died in that uh, medical system. I, yeah, for personal revelation, I, I definitely wondered how his life would have been different if someone had been admiring him all along. Yeah, Hero's journey in the sense of a very mundane life. He, was, he didn't get any big medals, got a good conduct medal. I think everyone got one. But he was over there, he saw um, horrible things was not okay when he came back. He never really was able to hold a job. He couldn't deal with authority, people telling him what to do. He would flip out and you know, be fired. You know? So it was, that was my father's background. My mom you know, held it together. She was heroic to me, obviously, but my dad also, but later in life, when I, as, I developed, as I was helping other people, I thought, what if someone had talked to my dad? That makes me cry a little bit, I have to say. It's not just uh, an interview my father and had said you know Jack you know you went you're like 18 or 19 years old you went to this horrible situation and you, who's prepared for something like that you come back and you marry somebody you're hoping for the best you know it blows me away that you even tried 
Really? Yeah, 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 yeah. It really does. You know, a lot of a lot of guys won't. If maybe they'll see some pretty girl, but they won't even ask her out. Nothing happens. You you got into the play of things, and you go, yeah, I guess I did. And I'm just saying that is the beginning of a conversation that I've had with lots of people, <laughs> and their lives have changed. From they're going to have, they're going to not get married till they do get married. And I've tracked them. They have kids. I get their Christmas cards with their 20-year-old kids now you know, and grandkids. And yeah, sometimes they're talking about not uh, terminating a pregnancy. And I say, you don't have to, you know, it, it, it's a choice. You, know, you, you, you could be equal to this. You could become a parent. You don't feel like it now, but it's good to know that you don't want to sell yourself short that you could never do. Oh, I don't think I'm ready. Well, there's a way that, that seeing a baby may bring something out in you and you become ready. And then you become Mature. That's been a rite of passage for thousands of years. Parenthood. We grow up in the process, not before. And they say, really? And I'd say, yeah, yeah. I've got a couple of kids that are, that are many that are, exist because of that conversation. You know, what am I going to say? So I wish my father had had that kind of a conversation with someone. I, my life could have been very different if he had come to be uh, uh, on a hero's journey, but I wouldn't tend to use that term. It's a little glorifying. I would just say, you know, you're my hero. You know, I wouldn't call it a journey. I would just say, you're my hero. You know, I, I want you to know that. And my father would say back to me, you know, cause you got to help a lot of skills. You know, my father was shy. You know, he didn't know how to have too many conversations with me. You know, you got somebody to just teach him, ask Stuart how his school did it. And then when he tells you say, tell me more. And then when he says math class, you can just say, well, tell me more about that. History, oh yeah, you learned about that. Tell me more about that. You know, I can't tell you how many marriages and families I've helped by just prescribing three words, tell me more. People, that was what was tragic. You know, not only the medical model or with this poetic approach and admiration, it was the lack of, of therapists stooping so low to try trivial interventions like tell me more or thank you. I, that was thank you and you're welcome. This stopped so many domestic violent situations that I've had to intervene on and murder for that matter. I can tell you, you know, people say, oh, this sounds interesting, but what about real problems? Yeah, uh, I, I was involved in a profilable shooter. I can't get too much into the detail of it for confidential reasons, but uh, basically I, I never brought it up why the profiling occurred. I just was talking to this person about it, that their profession. And they'd be good at it. They'd help a lot of people. Did it for maybe 20 sessions over eight months. I was, I did background checking, you know, to be sure there was other people watching, watchful, you know, uh, I, I took it seriously, you know, what, what, what was the, um, the presenting, let's call it profilable event, you know, sign that could, could, something could happen, you know, so I wasn't naive, but in the session, yeah, a lot of admiring, admiring, and we never talked about it, and at the end, I mentioned it, and then I, we kind of, I said, you know, that kind of situation, uh, they're just like us, shooting people, you have to always remember, they're just like us, they're, they're not like some Hollywood movie bad person, you know, and he started crying, he said that it's like shooting another person. It's like, I'm, a, I'm another person. I said, yeah, 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 you take it very seriously. It's not something to just joke about. And then I said, I don't think you're ever going to like just flippantly shoot people. 
and he changed 180 degrees. You know, he was, he was one of, you know, he's a gun carrying guy, NRA, it's not like I'm saying anything categorically, but he was somebody, and this is gonna happen more and more. We have a red flag law, I think it's coming into being passed, where everybody's sort of deputized to if somebody in your family or a friend is talking, they're depressed, they have signs, scientific signs, you know, you say you have to go to a, a therapist. That means there's gonna be a lot of people like this guy that showed up in my office. And how are we gonna treat them? That's why you know, Harvard, number one university press in, in America, you know, I, I, I wrote them a, a little bit of a query letter about the rewriting my book, Words for the, from the Soul, updating it, and they got very interested. Oh, good. So, you know, it, and there's lots more details uh, 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 that I can bring out about how people, because I got very interested, yeah, how people talk themselves into homicidal, suicidal, or divorce, because it's a conversation in their head. You know, they say mental health, what does that mean? Mental health problem, gun problem, mental health, either or, you know, and that I had to analyze too, you know, these problems get politicized. You know, transpartisan is very helpful to get because once you politicize, it's like a, like the Yankees and the Dodgers. You know, they're perpetual rivals. You can't ever agree if you're on what liberal or a conservative. You can't. You're not supposed to go to the other side. You know, that's a problem. You know, so you start to uh, say, yeah, that um, mental health side. When you really people stop. Well, what does that mean? You know, it's really sentences that go through a person's head. You know, we can say, I feel like shooting someone, that's a sentence. But if I act it out, now it's a crime and, a, and it's a tragedy. So if you boil it down, that's what you're, what you're trying to stop happen from happening if you're the mental health counselor with someone who's saying, I feel like slitting my wrist. I feel like getting a divorce. You know, I, my, my marriage is done. You know, different phrases. And I learned how to take each phrase apart and show people how they convince themselves. It's called cognitive psychology. They convince themselves with words. And uh, if I, oftentimes I would and they didn't look at all like, to my eye, they didn't look at all like the way my client had described them. They were regular parents. They weren't de demons from hell. And that was odd. My, my colleagues, you know, when I would say that, because they wouldn't meet the parents. You're not allowed to in some ways. You're, you're supposed to only see your client and the container is sacred. You can't break it. And I started to see that's not sacred. I, my goal is helping people. It's not the method. It's the goal. So I would say, I want them to meet your parents. They'll be helpful to me, not harmful. You can handle it. I can handle it. I can handle loyalty to you, loyalty. It's all one anyway. There's not sides. You know, that allowed when you think much better thoughts. When, when the family would be in my office, I wouldn't say, well, who's angry at who? That's what we're trained to, to, to do. I would say, what do you love about your mom? What do you love about, what do you admire about your, your child? And they start crying immediately. I say, take a look at each other. And they're, they're all in a different mood completely. So, so, you know, there's so many different rules I had to break, uh, whether medical model, which, yeah, the sacrosanct container, which is like a Petri dish, you know, you want to keep it separate. The, the, the individual session from the family session. I said, no, it's, it's life. It's their whole life we're, we're trying to help. And I can do it. We can do it. So Stuart, um, where can people learn more about your approach? 
I know you've written quite a few books. Where can people find your books, find your articles you've written? Uh, Words from the Soul is State University of New York. It's out there. You can get it very inexpensively now. It's five dollars. Some hard copies like 150 because it's you know, hard to get, but you can get the used copies for five, six, seven dollars. Also, you know, I, I hope that people who are listening that are responsible for their, their volunteer basis or professionally, you know, they want speakers. I, I, I'm in a retirement mode. I, I'm spending five months of next year giving uh, trainings around the world. Oh, nice. Because people in Europe uh, uh, heard me speak. You know, I did get to present the, this gun case, the shooting case, and with a power, you know, with a PowerPoint, I made a presentation out of it. Blown away. They never heard of such a thing. Comes in, he's profilable, and they're not trying to. Everybody wanted him in jail. They wanted the cops in. I said, No, I'm going to talk to him. I didn't mention it for eight months. What? None of it made sense. And then at the end, yeah, I say he broke out into tears and he had a, a, an awakening. Would so, what I do is travel around. They can, people can read my book. If, if, if they want me to come and speak at some group, yeah, I, I've tried to get more well known in my. Um, even though I am prominent, I was the president of my professional association in America for 20 years with a couple other people of transpersonal psychology. I've done projects, as I think you mentioned, with the office of the Dalai Lama. And I was flown to uh, Slovenia to meet the president of, of Slovenia after the Bosnian war zone so was, was a mess. They secretly flew me there to talk to this man, Janis Stranovic. So I have a lot of high profile cr credentials that I never broke the, uh, the, the confidentiality until these people died and it was okay because this was a bit secret. You know, being flown secretly to meet a president of a country and I chanted over him. I didn't, I didn't talk about that while he's alive because his detractors would use it against him. But now, now I can talk all these stories. I have plenty of stories. Harvard's interested. I'm doing it all over the world. So yeah, people can read about it. I'm not doing any private practice. I'm not taking new clients. Uh, I have a number of, of, of training people that I refer out. But yeah, I love talking to people like I am right now in different uh, conferences and settings. Is there a website people can find your work as well? I'm Luddite. <laughs> I'm avoiding, you know, if you want, you know, Publicity and all that kind of language. Yeah, I, I, I saw that it, it's thin. I wanted to rely on my character, if you can say it that way. Word of mouth. So I didn't buy any advertising. I, I had a website for a while. But what you can do is friend me on Facebook. Because okay. then I can be on one-in-one -one conversations. I post only what I want to, as a teaching example every day. It's low-tech. It's not a part of the whole internet website industry, really. Well, I'll make sure I include a link to your Facebook page. People can follow you up there and uh, befriend you. Uh, yeah. Stuart, great to see you and talk to you. Uh, once again, thank you for coming on again. Uh, for folks who are listening to this for the first time or watching it, uh, we actually have probably about half a dozen conversations that you have I've had over, over probably over longer than a decade. Um, so you can also check those out too. Quite a few of them are on Kundalini Yoga and a post-puberty, uh, puberty. <laughs> and uh, I'll include those in the show notes too so people can refer back to that conversation. And uh, I'll talk to you soon. Thanks again, Mike. Thanks, Stuart. Good night.
Bye-bye.